to Exploring the Catechism of the Council of Trent in a year. I'm Mark Langley, and today is day 99 in our exploration of this catechism. Today we are going to commence our study of the second commandment of the Decalogue. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And the catechism begins first with the subheading, Why this commandment is distinct from the first. The second commandment of the divine law is necessarily comprised in the first, which commands us to worship God in piety and holiness. For he who requires that honor be paid him also requires that he be spoken of with reverence and must forbid the contrary, as is clearly shown by these words of the Lord in Malachi. The son honoreth the father and the servant his master. If then I be a father, where is my honor? That's in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. However, on account of the importance of the obligation, God wished to make the law which commands his own divine and most holy name to be honored, a distinct commandment expressed in the clearest and simplest terms. The above observation should strongly convince the pastor that on this point it is not enough to speak in general terms, that the importance of the subject is such as to require to be dwelt upon at considerable length and to be explained to the faithful in all its bearings with distinctness, clearness, and accuracy. This diligence cannot be deemed superfluous since there are not wanting those who are so blinded by the darkness of error as not to dread to blaspheme his name, whom the angels glorify. Men are not deterred by this commandment laid down from shamelessly and daringly outraging his divine majesty every day, or rather every hour and moment of the day. Who is ignorant that every assertion is accompanied with an oath and teems with curses and imprecations? To such lengths has this impiety been carried that there is scarcely anyone who buys or sells or transacts business of any sort without having recourse to swearing, and who even in matters the most unimportant and trivial does not profane the most holy name of God thousands of times. It therefore becomes more imperative on the pastor not to neglect carefully and frequently to admonish the faithful how grievous and detestable is this crime. So this is a very interesting point the Catechism is making, that logically thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain is really included in the first commandment about thou shalt not have strange gods before me, um, as he quoted the book of Malachi, if I am a father, where is my honor? But the Catechism points out that because God's name is taken in vain, so often, and it is such a common thing, therefore, it deserved to have its own place as a separate commandment of the Decalogue. So we'll continue. The Catechism distinguishes the positive part of this commandment from the negative part. So we begin with the positive part. But in the exposition of this commandment, it should first be shown that besides a negative, it also contains a positive precept commanding the performance of a duty. To each of these, a separate explanation should be given, and for the sake of easier exposition, what the commandment requires should be first set forth, and then what it forbids. It commands us to honor the name of God and to swear by it with reverence. It prohibits us to contemn the divine name, to take it in vain, or swear by it falsely, unnecessarily, or rashly. In the part which commands us to honor the name of God, the command, as the pastor should show the faithful, is not directed to the letters or syllables of which that name is composed, or in any respect to the mere name, but to the meaning of a word used to express the omnipotent and eternal majesty of the Godhead, Trinity and Unity. Hence we easily infer the superstition of those among the Jews, who while they hesitated not to write, 
dared not to pronounce the name of God as if the divine power consisted in the four letters and not in the signification. And of course, the four letters refers to the Tetragrammaton. I have a footnote. It says the name Yahweh by which God was called among the Hebrews was written with only four consonants, the vowels being omitted and is therefore called the Tetragrammaton. Although the commandment uses the singular number, thou shalt not take the name of God, this is not to be understood to refer to any one name, but to every name by which God is generally designated. For he is called by many names, such as the Lord, the Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the King of kings, the strong, and by others of similar nature, which we meet in Scripture and which are all entitled to the same and equal veneration. It should next be taught how due honor is to be given to the name of God. Christians whose tongues should constantly celebrate the divine praises are not to be ignorant of a matter so important, indeed most necessary to salvation. The name of God may be honored in a variety of ways, but all may be reduced to those that follow. In the first place, God's name is honored when we publicly and confidently confess him to be our Lord and our God, and when we acknowledge and also proclaim Christ to be the author of our salvation. It is also honored when we pay a religious attention to the word of God, which announces to us his will, make it the subject of our constant meditation, and strive by reading or hearing it, according to our respective capacities and conditions of life, to become acquainted with it. Again, we honor and venerate the name of God when from a sense of religious duty we celebrate his praises, and under all circumstances, whether prosperous or adverse, return him unbounded thanks. Thus spoke the prophet, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and never forget all he hath done for thee. Among the Psalms of David, there are many in which, animated with singular piety towards God, he chants in sweetest strains the divine praises. There is also the example of the admirable patience of Job, who, when visited with the heaviest and most appalling calamities, never ceased with lofty and unconquered soul to give praise to God. When, therefore, we labor under affliction of mind or body, when oppressed by misery and misfortune, let us instantly direct all our thoughts and all the powers of our souls to the praises of God, saying with Job, Blessed be the name of the Lord. The name of God is not less honored when we confidently invoke his assistance either to relieve us from our affliction or to give us constancy and strength to endure them with fortitude. This is in accordance with the Lord's own wishes, Call upon me, he says, in the day of trouble, I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. We have illustrious examples of such supplications in many passages of Scripture, and especially in the 16th, 43rd, and 118th Psalms. Finally, we honor the name of God when we solemnly call upon him to witness the truth of what we assert. This mode of honoring God's name differs much from those already enumerated. Those means are in their own nature so good, so desirable, that our days and nights could not be more happily or more holily spent than in such practices of piety. I will bless the Lord at all times, says David. His praise shall be always in my mouth. On the other hand, although oaths are in themselves good, their frequent use is by no means praiseworthy. The reason of this difference is that oaths have been instituted only as remedies to human frailty and a necessary means of establishing the truth of what we assert as it is inexpedient to have recourse to medicine unless when it becomes necessary, and as its frequent use is harmful, so with regard to oaths it is not profitable to have recourse to them, unless there is a weighty and just cause. 
and frequent recurrence to them, far from being advantageous, is on the contrary highly prejudicial. Hence the excellent observation of St. Chrysostom, Oaths were introduced among men not at the beginning of the world, but long after, when vice had spread far and wide over the earth, when all things were disturbed and universal confusion reigned throughout, when, to complete human depravity, almost all mankind debased the dignity of their nature by the degrading service of idols. Then at length it was that the custom of oaths was introduced, for the perfidy and wickedness of men was so great that it was with difficulty that anyone could be induced to credit the assertion of another, and they began to call on God as a witness. The next subheading is the meaning of an oath. Since in explaining this part of the commandment, the chief object is to teach the faithful how to render an oath reverential and holy, it is first to be observed that to swear whenever the form of words may be is nothing else than to call God to witness. Thus to say, God is my witness, and by God mean one and the same thing. To swear by creatures such as the Holy Gospels, the cross, the names of relics or the saints, and so on, in order to prove our statement, is also to take an oath. Of themselves, it is true, such objects give no weight or authority to an oath. It is God himself who does this, whose divine majesty shines forth in them. Hence, to swear by the gospel is to swear by God himself, whose truth is contained and revealed in the gospel. This holds equally true with regard to those who swear by the saints, who are the temples of God who believe the truth of his gospel, were faithful in its observance, and spread it far and wide among the nations and peoples. This is also true of oaths uttered by way of execration, such as that of St. Paul, I call to God, I call God to witness upon my soul. By this form of oath, one submits himself to God's judgment, who is the avenger of falsehood. We do not, however, deny that some of these forms may be used without constituting an oath, but even in such cases it will be found useful to observe what has been said with regard to an oath, and to conform exactly to the same rule and standard. And now I thought it might be interesting to go to the Summa Theologica. In the second part of the second part, question 122, article 3, St. Thomas asked the question whether the second precept of the Decalogue is fittingly expressed. And uh, let's just go ahead and read that quickly. First, of course, we have the objections, and we have five objections uh, where the objectors are saying this second commandment is not fittingly expressed. So let's look at those. The first objection is, it seems that the second precept of the Decalogue is unfittingly expressed. For this precept, thou shalt not take the name of thy God in vain, is thus explained by a gloss on Exodus chapter 20, thou shalt not deem the Son of God to be a creature, so that it forbids an error against faith. Again, a gloss on the words of Deuteronomy, Chapter 5, Thou shalt not take the name of thy God in vain, adds, by giving the name of God to wood or stone, as though they forbade a false confession of faith, which, like error, is an act of unbelief. Now, unbelief precedes superstition as faith precedes religion. Therefore, this precept should have preceded the first, whereby superstition is forbidden. So that's an interesting objection where the the understanding here is that the first commandment forbids superstition. Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. And among the ways um, that we can do that is by superstitiously adoring false gods or adoring idols and that sort of thing. Uh, so the objector here says that this one about not taking the name of the Lord in vain 
uh, should precede that. Um, let's move on to the second objection. Further, the name of God is taken for many purposes. For instance, those of praise, of working miracles, and generally speaking, in conjunction with all we say or do, according to Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, all whatsoever you do in word or in work, do ye in the name of the Lord. Therefore, the precept forbidding the taking of God's name in vain seems to be more universal than the precept forbidding superstition, and thus should have preceded it. So again, maybe this commandment should have come before the first commandment, according to the objector. The third objection is further, a gloss on Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, expounds the precept, Thou shalt not take the name of thy God in vain, namely by swearing to nothing. Hence, this precept would seem to forbid useless swearing, that is to say, swearing without judgment. But false swearing, which is without truth, and unjust swearing, which is without justice, are much more grievous. Therefore, this precept should rather have forbidden them. So I think the objective there is saying it should have said, thou shalt not swear falsely, or thou shalt not swear unjustly, as opposed to thou shalt not swear in vain, or take the name of the Lord in vain. Proceeding now to the fourth objection, further, blasphemy or any word or deed that is an insult to God is much more grievous than perjury. Therefore, blasphemy and other like sins should rather have been forbidden by this precept. So that's an interesting objection too. What's worse, blasphemy or simply false swearing or swearing in vain? It would seem blasphemy is far worse. So why isn't there, why isn't the second commandment, thou shalt not blaspheme? And finally, the fifth objection, further God's names are many. Therefore, it should not have been said indefinitely, thou shalt not take the name of thy God in vain. St. Thomas proceeds, on the contrary, stands the authority of Scripture. And he proceeds, I answer that in one who is being instructed in virtue, it is necessary to remove obstacles to true religion before establishing him in true religion. Now, a thing is opposed to true religion in two ways. First, by excess when to wit that which belongs to religion is given to others than to whom it is due. And this pertains to superstition. Secondly, by lack, as it were, of reverence, when to wit God is contemned. And this pertains to the vice of irreligion, as stated above. Now, superstition hinders religion by preventing man from acknowledging God so as to worship him. And when a man's mind is engrossed in some undue worship, he cannot at the same time give due worship to God, according to Isaiah the bed is straightened so that one must fall out. That is, either the true God or false God must fall out from man's heart. And a short covering cannot cover both. On the other hand, irreligion hinders religion by preventing man from honoring God after he has acknowledged him. Now, one must first of all acknowledge God with a view to worship before honoring him we have acknowledged. For this reason, the precept forbidding superstition is placed before the second precept, which forbids perjury that pertains to irreligion. So, St. Thomas appears to be answering the first two objections primarily there by saying the second commandment concerning God's name, because it, it's about honoring God, must come after the first commandment, which is establishing man in the worship of God. So, he says, we honor him after we have acknowledged him. Then he goes on to the replies to the objections. He says, 
these expositions are mystical. The literal explanation is that which is given in Deuteronomy. Thou shalt not take the name of thy God in vain, namely by swearing on that which is not. The reply to the objection to this precept does not forbid all taking of the name of God, but properly the taking of God's name in confirmation of a man's word by way of an oath. Because men are wont to take God's name more frequently in this way, nevertheless we may understand that in consequence all inordinate taking of the divine name is forbidden by this precept, and it is in this sense that we are to take the explanation quoted in the first objection. Reply to the objection three, to swear to nothing means to swear to that which is not. This pertains to false swearing, which is chiefly called perjury, as stated above. For when a man swears to that which is false, his swearing is vain in itself, since it is not supported by the truth. On the other hand, when a man swears without judgment, through levity, if he swears to the truth, there is no vanity on the part of the oath itself, but only on the part of the swearer. And the reply to the fourth objection, just as when we instruct a man in some science, we begin by putting before him certain general maxims. Even so, the law which forms man to virtue by instructing him in the precepts of the Decalogue, Decalogue, which are the first of all precepts, gave expression by prohibition or by command to those things which are of most common occurrence in the course of human life. Hence, the precepts of the Decalogue include the prohibition of perjury, which is of more frequent occurrence than blasphemy, since man does not fall so often into the latter sin. And that's the objection, the reply that I think uh, the Catechism was referring to, that these, the commandments are not necessarily given because they uh, forbid the most grievous sins, but they, being part of the law, they, um, the second commandment prohibits something which is far more common and therefore deserved to be the second commandment. Finally, the reply to the fifth objection, reverence is due to the divine names on the part of the thing signified, which is one, and not on the part of the signifying words, which are many. Hence, it is expressed in the singular, thou shalt not take the name of thy God in vain, since it matters not in which of God's names perjury is committed. And so that's kind of a tricky article, but we see some light from that. And, um, concerning the fact that the second commandment is fittingly placed after the first commandment, and it's also fittingly expressed even to the particular point that it doesn't say thou shalt not take the names of thy God in vain, but rather thou shalt not take the name because it forbids all, all false or vain swearing by any name that signifies God. So that's where we'll stop today. Thank you for joining me in this episode of Exploring the Catechism of the Council of Trent in a Year. I'm Mark Langley, and we look forward to finishing this commandment in our next two episodes. 